We got a special guest with us. So you know the last uh, four or five weeks, and uh, as we're starting this, just remembering, hello you at your other campuses, you're joining us now. So East and Mission and Central and Real Life, I don't want to forget any of you because I've done that before and then I get angry emails. Hello all of you. Jeremy, hey, the last four or five weeks, uh, we have been talking about a project that we're partnering with Central Church in the village of Harrison, uh, to see an old church that has closed its doors three years ago get replanted, and we've got the real live campus pastor right here with us. Can you say welcome to him? Good to be here, Northview. Uh, it's cool. And you're actually not a stranger to Northview. Tell these people your connections to no, Northview. Oh, so myself, my family, uh, we go way back with Northview. Almost 30 years ago, it was Northview that sent uh, my family and I to Mexico City, where my parents served as church planters for 10 years. Uh, upon coming back, I was involved in drumming for Alpha, gathered back in center court back in the day. Uh, and then more recently, after finishing a Bachelor of Theology and Pastoral Leadership, uh, did an internship here, 2014 to 2015, under none other than Pastor Ezra Cote. Oh, that's great. You survived yeah. that year, so that, barely. Yeah, yeah. that was yeah. great. Yeah. And then after that, you went where? Uh, then we uh, headed out because BC was too beautiful for us. Uh, we went all the way out to Winkler, Manitoba, out to the Ooh, prairies. Yes. And uh, God put us through the fire, and we've now come back to the promised land. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so Harrison, uh, what excites you about that opportunity and that village? Well, Mark, uh, probably the biggest thing is, is the opportunity there. Uh, in Harrison, a uh, very rapidly growing community, second fastest growing community in all of southwestern BC, hmm. there's one church. And, and right now its doors are closed. And so we are so looking forward to launching because of evangelistic opportunities there, because of discipleship opportunities. So Yeah, so exciting. already you've had a few kind of cool contacts in the community. Like, tell us a little bit about one yeah, of those stories. Yeah, God just continues to open doors. Uh, been able to be part of the, the pack in the local elementary school. Uh, we were able to put our kids there, even though it's a small school. And uh, my wife recently actually got hired as a secretary there beginning of December. Uh, there's been connections in the community, just just all sorts of little things that, that God is doing, right? Beginning yeah. to build his church. Oh, that's cool. So looking at this picture, you can see the church there with the sanctuary and a two-story add-on at the back. Uh, the roof has been repaired already. Uh, tell us what this renovation is going to do. Uh, what are the, what's the major project that needs to be done, and how's it going to help you? Yeah, so there's, there's a variety of projects. Can't go into all of them time, uh, just for time's time sake. Uh, but, for example, we're doing bunch of upgrades in our chapel just to make that a, a fully functioning and a warm welcoming space. Uh, we need to do some renos in our kitchen. Right now our, our commercial dishwasher isn't working, so little things like that to really build community around food, uh, you know, setting up children's ministry areas. Uh, we'd like to set up, you know, some, some wall-mounted AC units so that we can be considered a extreme shelter, extreme weather shelter when, when uh, need arises. But really, overall, the way that your partnership helps us is, uh, if I could put in two words, it would be focus and effectiveness. So, have you ever tried tackling a job with the wrong tools? <laughs> every time. Yeah, every time. <laughs> it, it, it's often possible, but it can be incredibly frustrating, right? And then the turnout's not what you really expect. So, you can still go and shingle a house using a hammer and a, and a pouch full of nails, but if you have the means to get, uh, you know, a couple air hoses, a couple nail guns, compressor, you can just do so much more, right? So with your help, uh, we're hoping that, you know, we can upgrade to some of those things and really focus on discipleship, outreach, and just 
go hard right from the get-go. That's cool. We're excited about this. We're going to pray for them. Uh, I think the biggest thing in this is you can see it's a tiny building. Uh, we have the privilege of having three or four open spaces here. If you want to have a meal, you can go to Center Court. If we want to have extra service or a funeral, you go to West Court. We can meet in this ma ma major sanctuary here. Uh, there's one room in this church, and right now there are pews in it, so it only gets used on Sunday morning for an hour, and then it's not usable the rest of the week. So those pews are going to come out. That's going to be a multi-purpose room. It'll be used all through the week for various functions, and so a lot of things to be excited about. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me, and we're going to pray for Jeremy, and then we'll jump into the word. So why don't we stand and I pray for you. Uh, Jesus, thank you so much uh, for calling this couple. Uh, thank you for calling them back from Manitoba. Thank you for the experiences they had there in Winkler and uh, the years of ministry that they had there effectively and that you laid it on their heart. Uh, this village, uh, some 3,000 people and growing, where there literally today is not a, a church with its doors open. And so, Father, we pray that already you would be preparing men and women, boys and girls that are going to be impacted by the gospel as this church gets running again. And so, Lord, we pray for them. We pray that the needed funds would come in to renovate this building. But more than that, not just the building, Lord, we pray that your spirit would be at work in this village. Uh, so, Lord, would you go ahead of them, give them favor, give them open doors, and we ask your blessing on their life and their ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. That's great. Thanks so much, Mark. Right on. Thank you, North. Have a seat, guys. Good. Well, hey, welcome here. You glad to be here? Good, awesome. Uh, grab your Bibles. We are picking up in Philippians. You, that should be obvious by now. We're in week, I think, nine or ten of a 12-week series. And this message is uh, way too long for 35 minutes. So that you know what that means already. There is so much in this short little chunk of Scripture. Uh, but what we're going to be talking about tonight is a very, very real issue. And I am sure that most of you, if you have kids or grandkids have likely seen the Pixar Studios film, Inside Out. Anyone know that film? Yes, it's an entertaining look at the emotions inside our mind uh, through the mind of a little girl named Riley and five key emotions that we all have living inside our head. Joy, sadness, disgust, fear, and anger. And you get this inside look inside our mind as the conversations go on. And it, uh, we laugh along with it because we so recognize these voices that we have in our minds as well. Uh, if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend it. It is so relatable. It's over-the-top exaggerated, uh, to make a point. And what was fun is when the movie came out, they had each of these characters make their own individual trailer. So we're going to watch one of those trailers from Fear. I'm Bill Hader, and I play Fear in Disney Pixar's Inside Out. <laughs> I know what you're thinking. Who wants to be afraid all the time? But fear isn't just about screaming so hard and pass out from sheer terror. It's also about keeping you safe. Worst scenario is either quicksand, spontaneous combustion, or getting called on by the teacher. Without fear, you wouldn't void spooky caves bears. Don't get me started about bears. Otherwise, I'd be terrified right now. Plus, you all love being afraid sometimes. Like when you're watching a scary movie. Those are shoes of doom! But if there's one thing these different emotions have in common, it's that they're all taking care of you. We did it, gang! So relax. Disney Pixar's Inside Out, get ready to meet the little voices inside your head. We did not die today. I call that an unqualified success. 
Ah, yes, the little voices inside your head. And no, we're not going to watch the whole movie. Uh, but you can go home and watch it. Yeah, I know. Why did I choose fear of those five? Well, our text today raises the topic of anxiety, and so I thought that was an appropriate uh, lead-in, and how we battle anxiety that naturally raises its head in all of our lives. And what we're really doing is pressing in to the slow motion button in chapter four. So chapter four is really the wrap-up. The first three chapters have done a lot of theology, a lot of practical teaching, and chapter four is sort of Paul's farewell, his last exhortations and encouragement, and you could easily do it in just one quick lesson, and there are six probably main points in this. Number one, get along. That was last weekend, Pastor Vin's message. Rejoice and pray. That's this weekend's message. Guard your thoughts, be content, and be generous. Those six main points cover this chapter, and we could just throw those up, bullet point list, all the things you learned in kindergarten, and then say, go thou and do likewise. But we're pressing the pause button. We're pressing really slowly into this because there is a lot in each one of these sections. And this is a message, I think, honestly, that we always need to hear. Where do you turn when the world around us seems to be falling apart? Whether on the macro scale or your own personal life. And as I'm digging into the study in my mind, and you have your own stories, but I'm going back through the the Rolodex, if anyone knows what that is, in my mind, of memories, so many of them. 21 years old, headed off to my fourth year of Bible school. And one of my buddies who's on his way to a year in missions is killed in a crazy car accident just outside Revelstoke, 22 years old. And you're like, God, what are you doing? doing? Why do the good guys die young? The winter of 1991, some of you in construction will remember that. It was a deep freeze. I was in outdoor construction. There was no work for six, eight weeks. We had three babies. God, do you know we need to feed these kids? Fall of 93, our almost three-year-old son pushes a chair up to the stove when Carolyn stepped out the kitchen for just a moment and pulled a pot of boiling water down on him. And as we stood at his bedside in MSA hospital and wondering, is this kid going to survive? Is he going to have lifelong scarring? In particular, one hand, we were worried about, God, are you aware of what's going on in our life right now? And I know you have your own set of stories and scenarios like that as well. And it's a really simple text, just four verses, and we see Uh, The command to rejoice and the reminder of God's nearness in the first couple verses. The next couple verses, we see a command to not be anxious and then a reminder of the promised peace that God gives us. And it's all organized around this one key thought, if you take this with you, that God can be trusted to do what is right with your life. If you remember nothing else, remember that one. That God can be trusted to do what is right with your life. And so the text starts with a command right off the top. Chapter 4, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's an imperative. It's a command, actually. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because we actually hammered away at this at the beginning of chapter 3 because the very same command opens chapter 3. Rejoice. Chapter 3 starts. Uh, Same topic, but two different angles. In chapter 3, Paul's challenge is that we would rejoice rightly. 
uh, versus rejoicing wrongly. And if you remember the context, and I don't expect it's three, four weeks ago, you're like, I forgot that message. It's okay, I do too. Don't rejoice in your own righteousness. And Paul recounts all of the things that he could count as his righteous acts as a faithful follower of Christ. And yet he says, no, all of those things go on the manure pile. They, they mean nothing to me anymore. And I am rightly rejoicing only and fully in the finished work of Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 9. That's what we rejoice in. Rejoice in the Lord. So chapter 3 is dealing with the macro question. How do we get things right with God? Whereas chapter 4 is dealing with rejoicing in the daily journey of life. And later on in the context, and we'll get to it in a couple weeks, Paul specifically says, I've had times of plenty and I've had times of great want. And in either plenty or in want, I've learned the secret of being content in either of those situations because I can do all things through Christ who gives me the strength to be content, whether well-fed or hungry. And it's a challenging word to rejoice always, always. You're like, but Lord, don't you know what's happening in my life right now? In the times and the seasons when rejoicing is the very last thought in your mind. Uh, so remind yourself, if you've forgotten, just remind yourself the context. Paul is writing this letter from prison. Remember that. He spent two years in a prison in Caesarea, and then he is shipped over to Rome, and he spends two years in that prison, and, and somewhere in that two years in Rome, he writes this letter and actually several other letters. And it's interesting that from a prison cell, he uses that word rejoice 23 times. Now, it's in different forms. It's grace, it's charis, and it's other words, but the form of rejoice is used 23 times in four short chapters. Rejoice, 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 rejoice from the prison cell. Think of Martin Luther King Jr. Think of Bonhoeffer. Think of Anne Frank. Think of Nelson Mandela. Letters from prison and the impact that those letters have. So Paul calls us to get our eyes up out of the muck and mire of daily living. But now read it really clearly because this is important because some people might be ticked off already. Read it carefully. Understand what Paul is and is not saying. Paul is not saying, rejoice that you are standing at the graveside of someone that you love. He is not saying, rejoice that the doctor has just said it's cancer. He doesn't say, rejoice when your kids rebel. He, he doesn't say, rejoice that these things happen. He says, rejoice in the Lord. The imperative is rejoice in the Lord, not in the circumstances. And there's a huge difference between happiness and joy. Massive difference between happiness and joy. I was thinking back, so my kids, Sunday school, way back, like 50 years ago, we used to sing a song, I'm in right out, right ha happy all the time. Anybody else know that song? It's actually poor theology. Because as Christians, we are not happy all the time. We are called to be joyful all the time, but you can be joyful and be very unhappy in the circumstances you find yourself in. There is a big difference between joy and happiness. And the Bible doesn't tell us to deny our stress or to stick our heads in the sand or to pretend that hard times never happen to us. We're just hashtag blessed all the time. That we don't grieve, that we don't have sorrow but to lift our eyes above the circumstances to the Lord himself, to who he is and what he did, to his perfect life, to his precious death, to his powerful resurrection, 
and to his very present rule and reign over the universe and over our lives in everything we know to be true of who God is and what he has done. But note also we rejoice because we're reminded that the Lord is near. The very next phrase says that in verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And some translations say, let your gentleness be known. What, what Paul is pointing to here is that regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in, we refuse to freak out. Our state of mind, our deportment, our soberly and moderation is rooted deeply, not only in who God is and what he has done in the past, but the fact that he is near. He is right here with us in the midst of it. So Psalm 46, what a great promise. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. God is with us. Interesting, commentators say that phrase, the Lord is near, could be taken in two ways. It could refer literally to that the Lord is here. He is with us right now in this moment. He is for us. He is watching over us. Or it can also be taken return to, uh, to refer to the Lord's return. The Lord's return is near. The great day of the Lord. The final day when everything is going to be made right. And so we can hang on even in the midst of suffering because we're looking forward to that day. Both translations would be accurate. But I think the first and the most tangible is the one that's fitting to this context. Paul is in essence saying, I refuse to freak out when the world seems to be going crazy around me. Why? Because the Lord's with me. The Lord is near. The Lord is present. There's a really powerful image, Psalm 131. It's a, a very powerful image. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, now listen to this word picture. I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Now it's a really intimate picture. It's an intimate picture of a nursing infant resting in his mother's arms. The feeding is complete. He's now being weaned off and resting, content. And all of you who have been parents know this moment, right? When that crying, fussing child is now satisfied and is resting in mama's arms and by God's grace is drifting back to sleep and you're saying, please God, let him sleep all night. <laughs> and if you take that analogy further, this is such a, an appropriate picture as you watch little children, the tiniest little children and their innocent trust that they have in moms and dads. Have you ever thought about it? These kids that get carted all around thrown in the car seat, in the car, out of the car, grandma's house, back to home, blah, blah, blah. We're going, it doesn't matter. As long as mom and dad are near, they just go along with the ride. There's always going to be food on the table. There's going to be a bath and warm milk before I go to sleep at night. And if I have a bad dream, if I cry in the night, mom or dad will come to me. There's just this innocent sense of I'm okay. Even in the midst of this war-torn images that we see coming out of Ukraine, I don't know if you've picked up on those images. Some of the tiniest little children, most of these moms coming out with their kids, and the littlest ones, what are they doing? They're playing. They're holding mom's hands. They're oblivious to the fact that bombs are dropping on their nation. They're, they're just with mom. They're holding the hand. They're content. They're at rest. What a word picture. 
The nearness of God gives us this gentle reasonableness, this this peace, this rest. God can be trusted to do what's right with my life. We sing so many songs about this. In fact, we could just spend the next half hour going through great hymns of the faith that talk about the nearness of God. A 150-year-old hymn, Nearer My God to Thee. Or, or, or the update that Matt Mayer made of, of, I need you every hour. I love this song. Lord, I come, I confess. Bowing here, I find rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one who guides my heart. Lord, I need you. How I need you. Every hour, I need you. I don't know if you've noticed when we sing songs like that, it feels like the volume in the room just rises. I'm anchored, I'm rooted. The winds can blow because the anchor holds solid. And the concept is so basic that if the Lord is for you, then who can be against you? If the Lord is on your side, then you don't have to fight or argue or prove yourself. You can be gentle. The Lord is near and so your moderation increases because he's in charge and you don't need to be in charge. So the second half of the text is also important. So straightforward. The command to not be anxious and the reminder of his promised peace. So look at verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's an interesting text. Anxiety comes up several times in the New Testament, at least 10 or 12 times if you study that word. But only twice are we commanded, do not be anxious. The subjects of anxiety comes up, but twice we're told, do not be anxious as a command. Paul says it here, and Jesus said it in the Gospels. Uh, In Jesus' most famous sermon, in Matthew 5, uh, he goes on in a long dialogue and he says, Therefore I tell you, and look at these words, do not be anxious. Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they are? And which of you, by being anxious, there's the same word again, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They're neither spoil nor, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Do not be anxious. Jesus saying, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. So seek first the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So you read a text like that and you're like, so what is it that we worry about? Well, everything is what Jesus is saying. We worry about food. We worry about clothing. We worry about paying the bills. We worry about having a job. We worry about yesterday. We worry about tomorrow. We worry about everything. Gas money. 
But typically it comes down to things that we think are out of our control, right? And that's why that character fear on Inside Out is so good for us, because it presses us in to see that so many of our fears are actually unfounded. In fact, many of them are irrational, but it doesn't really matter because once fear and worry takes root in our mind, it is hard to shake it off, is it not? Uh, if you want the adult version of Inside Out, I mean, it's 30 years old, but you've got to watch What About Bob again. I mean, those of you who are old enough to remember, it's 30 years. If you haven't seen it, it's a classic. You've got to see it. The best line of the movie is, what are you worried about? Well, what if I'm out and I can't find a washroom and my bladder explodes? You're like, he is so irrational. And we laugh at it because we're like, we can connect to the reality of his fears. Look at that word, uh, anxious. It's an interesting word. I'm going to look at it from three ways. The Greek word anxious simply means to be divided. It literally means to cut across. And that's a really great word picture of worry. It's a divided mind. It's a mind that's been cut in two. It's warring against itself. And so you've had these conversations in your mind where there's one voice saying one thing and another voice saying another. Uh, don't be dumb. That could never happen. Stop worrying. Oh, yeah, but what if it does happen? Where would I turn? How would I handle it? The divided mind. Cut. The English word worry is an interesting word too. If you look it up in the dictionary, it's just simply to be emotionally worked up over something, to fret, to feel uneasy, to suffer disturbing thoughts. Now, there's an interesting uh, definition when you get down three or four in the dictionary, an old English word, and I didn't realize this, I didn't remember it at least, that you know when a dog is chewing on something, they call it he is worrying. He worries that bone. That's how it was used in Old English. And I thought, man, what a great word picture. A dog that has a bone and he just keeps gnawing on it, carrying it around, chewing it, gnawing it, and then he buries it. And then he goes back and he digs it up again and he chews on it and he gnaws it and then he buries it. And then he goes back again and he digs it up. Like, what a great word picture of worrying. And then the English word also has a connection to German. It's a derivation from German, the German word vergen. And if some of you in the room know German, you'll know what that word means, vergen. It means to choke, to strangle, or to suffocate. And that is a great word for worry as well. It's what worry does to us. Uh, the metaphor that Jesus used in the parable of the soils, the third soil, the thorny soils, the cares of this life choke out the seed. It can't bear fruit. So Paul says, don't worry, but instead pray. Bring your prayers and your petitions to the Lord. And so chapter 4, verse 6, he uses three words that overlap. And everything by prayer, supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So three, you could say synonyms, three different words for prayer. And you could just say he's just repeating the thoughts. So pray and supplications and requests, it's all the same. And yet the intensity in each one of those words grows. So all of it is to be done in this atmosphere of thanksgiving, but first he simply says pray. And it's a general word that's used across the New Testament just for all the things that we take to the Lord, our prayers and our thanksgivings, the conversations that we have with God when we go to him at any moment in time for any issue and we're just talking to God and we're making him aware of what's going on in our life. Supplication is one level deeper. And it refers to the intensity the earnestness of our prayer. This, this prayer is used when we are crying out to God, when there's something on our heart that we're like, Lord, you have got to step in. A couple examples. In, in Luke 1, uh, the angel comes and he speaks to Zechariah, and he says, Zechariah, 
God has heard your prayer, your supplication. He's heard your cry. Your wife, Elizabeth, who's been barren, who has not been able to bear a child, is going to have a child. The Lord has heard your cry, your supplication, your prayer. Uh, James 5, this is a challenging text. It says, Elijah was a man just like you and me. And then it goes on to say, he prayed earnestly. There's the phrase, earnestly, and it didn't rain for three years. How many of you have done that? Earnest petition, crying out to the Lord. But then the strongest is the next one, requests. And it sounds a little bit soft in English, but in the Greek language, it had a very strong confidence. In fact, it's used in a couple places as a demand. I'll show you this in Luke 23. So Pilate decided that their demand right there is the same word that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection, Barabbas, for whom they asked, and he delivered Jesus over to their will. So the very same word, make your request may be made out unto God, could be translated, let your demands go to God. Now that doesn't sound very holy, does it? To go to God demanding? And yet, that's what this word implies. It's used in John 5 as well, 1 John 5, and this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything, and here's the key phrase, according to his will. So if we go to him in prayer and we know that it is the will of God, he hears us, and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests, or you could say we have the demands that we take to him because we're praying in his will. That is an interesting phrase. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, it's the kind of praying when we take it up with God, if you will. Where it's like you're getting up in God's face and saying, God, you have said... And so we are asking you to be true to what you have said. God, you said... You would never leave us or forsake us. You said that, God, multiple times. And so, God, right now, I don't feel your presence. And so I am asking you that I would feel your presence. I'm asking you to show yourself real and powerful me to me because you've said you would never leave me and you would never forsake me. And regardless of whether I feel your presence or not, I will believe and I will trust your word that you do never leave me and you never forsake me. So, God, I'm telling you that. Lord, you said nothing could separate me from the love of God. You said that, Lord. Romans 8, Paul wrote these words, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. I'm sure... I'm sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, so Lord, can I just remind you of a few things? Lord, can I remind you of your promise that would anchor me deeply in this truth that regardless of what is happening with the world economy, nothing can separate me from your love? That regardless of how long this stupid pandemic goes on, regardless of wars and rumors of wars, regardless of if persecution comes to North America, regardless if the day comes they drag us before the courts to give an account for what we believe, and even, Lord, if they would literally take our lives, nothing can separate me from your love. And in that, I will rejoice. 
It's a really interesting text in Isaiah 62. This is a challenge about going to God in prayer and almost demanding that he listen. Isaiah 62, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen, and all day and all night they shall never be silent. Now listen to this. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes to praise and all the earth. It's like, Lord, I'm standing and I'm knocking on the door. I'm knocking on the door and I'm pounding on the door and I'm pounding on the door and I am not going to give you rest, Lord, until you answer the very promises that you've been given to us. Pray back the promises of God to him. And when the people of God start praying like this, worries and anxieties fall away. Why? Because we are anchoring ourselves to the only one who has the ultimate power over our lives. We're releasing our need to be in control of every detail of our life. And God's peace then sets a guard over our hearts. It is such a simple text. The command to rejoice is anchored in the promise that the Lord is near. And the command to not be anxious is anchored in the abiding peace that is ours in God. So, stop worrying and take everything to God in prayer. Simple. But, that command to rejoice makes a massive assumption. It makes a massive assumption because it assumes that Paul's readers had enough knowledge of who God was and is, what he has done, what he is doing, and promises to do, that they could actually rejoice in the Lord. You see, what it assumes in an agricultural part of the world where we live is that you can get your roots down deep. And that the winds of culture and the winds of life and the winds of politics and sexuality and money and military invasions and whatever comes against us, all those winds can blow. But if you've got roots down deep, you are not thrown off center because you're deeply rooted in the word of God. And you're deeply rooted in the community of God and you're deeply rooted in the history of God. You see... The only way you're going to rejoice in the Lord, I'll tell you this straight up, the only way you're going to rejoice in the Lord is if you are deeply rooted in this book. Colossians 2 talks about people, baby Christians, who've just come to faith in Christ, and it says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, praise God that you have. So now walk in him, rooted and built up in him established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding with thanksgiving. Get your roots down deep. Jeremiah, what a beautiful passage. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He's like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green. He's not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. You see, honestly, it's why the church exists. It's why the ministry of, of all the people that you pay to serve on our staff to equip the saints for the works of ministry, our primary motivation in your life is to get your roots down deep into God's word. Not that we would stand with you and not be shaken because we're not shaken, but to get your roots down deep so that when the wind blows in your life and the storm and the crap hits the fan in your life, that your roots are down deep. That's our job. That's our assignment. The only way to rejoice in the Lord is if you're rooted deeply in the community of God. I fundamentally believe this. 
Ephesians 4, there it talks about equipping the saints for the works of ministry. And then it goes on to say this, until we all attain maturity, the fullness of Christ. This is the goal. Getting your roots down deep. You're no longer children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's an amazing text. As we get our roots down deep into the word, as the family of God, as the community of God, we literally together build one another up in this community of faith. It is why we need our brothers and sisters in Christ so desperately. It is why we need the community of faith. Oh, how we need the family of God. The fellowship of brothers and sisters. The community of the saints. And my greatest fear for people as they leave fellowship, as they leave the church, that soon they will be leaving their faith. We've seen it far too long. People think that they can survive out there on their own. I don't need to be part of a church. I don't need to be part of a community. I don't need to have Christian fellowship. It's just me and Jesus and I can survive. And inevitably they do not survive. They do not persevere. Oh, brothers and sisters, how we need the community of faith. Do not forsake the gathering of the saints. And finally, the only way to rejoice in the Lord is if you're deeply rooted in the history of who God is and what he's done. We have got to be students of history. God's challenge to the children of Israel when they were entering the promised land was this. Don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget. To say it again, don't forget. Hear, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and your mind, and these words that I command you shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Why? Why? Because your kids weren't there. Your kids weren't there to see what you saw. Your kids didn't experience the Red Sea opening up and dry ground. Your kids weren't there daily when the manna fell from heaven. Your kids weren't there when water sprung out of the rock. Your kids weren't there when your clothes didn't wear out, your shoes didn't wear out for 40 freaking years. Tell them. Remind them. And when the Lord God brings you into the land with great and good cities that you did not build... And houses full of all good things that you did not fill. And cisterns that you didn't dig. And vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care. Take care. Warning, warning, warning. Take care. Lest you forget the Lord your God. When you are in the promised land. Can I just tell you this, that we live in the promised land? It maybe doesn't look so promising on the horizon that's coming down against us, but we live in the promised land. We live in the land of milk and honey. If you want a modern translation of this, it would be God saying, when the deep freeze is full, and there's extra clothes in your closet, and you've got a little money in savings, and there's a little bit of success under your belt, don't forget, don't forget... 
You see, it's the danger of growing up in a so-called Christian country. It's the danger of growing up in a Christian home. It's the danger of peace and prosperity. It's the danger of having never faced a hard time in your life. And it is why they tell us today, statistically, 30 to 40% of our Christian young kids, as they get out of high school and go to university, 30 to 40% of them fall away. Because for the very first time, their faith is tested. For the very first time, they hit an obstacle. For the very first time, not everything in their life is affirmed by mom and dad and by the church, and their roots aren't strong. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, what a timely quote with what's happening right now in Russia and Ukraine. He was the the loudest voice of dissidents, referring back to the revolution 100 years ago. In 1983, he won the Templeton Award, and on receiving that award, he said this, more than half a century ago, while I was still a child, I recall hearing a number of older people offering the following explanation for the great disasters that had befallen Russia. Men have forgotten God. That is why this happened. Since then, I have spent well nigh 50 years working on the history of our revolution, And in the process, I've read hundreds of books, collected hundreds of personal testimonies, and have already contributed eight volumes of my own toward the effort of clearing away the rubble left by that upheaval. But if I were asked to formulate as concisely as possible the main cause for the ruinous revolution that swallowed up some 60 million of our people, I could not put it more accurately than to repeat Men have forgotten God. That's why all of this happened. The greatest disaster for any nation and for any individual is that we might forget our God. Oh, church. Oh, church, how we need to be awakened for the days ahead of us. So, dear church, what are you worried about? What weight are you taking on yourself that only the Lord of hosts can carry for you? What fears are keeping you awake at night? What bone are you chewing on? See, the solution to your worry is to give it to the Lord. But you will only give your worries away to one that you fully trust. And you will only fully trust the one that you fully know. Oh, how we need this encouragement. Two commands. Rejoice in the Lord. Do not be anxious. Two commands. And two promises. The Lord is near. The Lord is near and his peace will guard your heart and mind. And if you roll it all into one statement to anchor it, God can be trusted to do what is right with my life. You know this, friends. The winds are picking up. They are. We're living in a time we've never seen in our generation, and we don't know what the next few years will hold. We've got to be deeply rooted. Deeply rooted in his word, deeply rooted in this community, and deeply rooted in the history of who God is, what he has done, what he is doing, what he promises to do. And when we're rooted, then let the wind blow, because our anchor holds. Do you stand with me? I want to pray for you team will come and lead us. Lord Jesus, Spirit, 
You know what's going on in the hearts and minds of the men and women, the boys and girls that are listening to this message right now. You know the worries that are keeping them awake at night. And so, Lord, in this moment, we simply, again, express our absolute surrender to you and our absolute need. Lord, I need you how I need you. That you would come and that you would anchor us. That you would anchor us deeply, roots down deep into the truth of your word. Roots down deep into the fellowship of brothers and sisters, shoulder to shoulder, side by side, leaning in together, supporting, caring, praying, carrying one another. Deeply rooted, reminding ourselves God's faithfulness in the past. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. You've been faithful in the past. You were faithful today. You will be faithful tomorrow. And so, Lord, I pray for men and women who need that assurance in this moment, who need to release something that they've been hanging on to into your care, into your control, and spirit, would you give them the grace to do so? Pray that blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.